you know, we should know this, but I mean, federalism is not only America's secret weapon about why things work, um, <clears throat> how you can do something in a state and realize this is a bad idea uh, or a good idea. Federalism is also the secret to success for the modern conservative movement, the modern Republican Party, uh, and that is our ideas actually work. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. And thanks for listening to the Flyover Country Podcast. Scott Jennings here, another special edition with a great guest in studio. First, my panel, Jared Crawford, Joe Arnold, and Sean Southerd, all sitting next to the legendary... American political activist and tax reduction advocate. We should all be so lucky to be described as such. Grover Norquist from <laughs> Americans for Tax Reform is here. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Good to be with you. And you're in Louisville, Kentucky today mm. uh, to uh, talk to some folks about what's going on in the state. You're attending a meeting of some conservative activists, but what brings you to Louisville? Well, one of the things that's exciting about Kentucky is it's one of the leaders in the move to phase out the personal income tax at the state level. We've all known that for decades... There were seven states that had no income tax, the famous ones being Florida, Texas, Tennessee, a couple of other square states out west. Uh, and people move to those states, and those states grow faster than other states. Um, also, right to work matters when companies and people move. But independent, in addition to that, the no personal income tax is a huge draw, um, and <clears throat> regardless of weather, New Hampshire is close to being a no-income tax state. Now, they will be in the next few years, but they've been getting there uh, over time. There are 12 states that can look you in the eye and say, we are going to zero. Mm -hmm. Not tomorrow, but every year we're going to look for the opportunity to take the rates down until we get to zero. It may take us eight years, may take us 12 years, but we'll be at zero. And that's what investors, that's what businesses, that's what people looking, planning their lives out. They want to know where you're going on personal income tax, not just where you are right now, because states can go in the wrong direction unless they're moving in the right direction. Kentucky could get nothing done on tax reform for a long time when Democrats ran the place. You had Democrat governors and Democrat legislature and, and nothing, nothing, nothing. And we talked about it for years. Then the Republicans took over and started this march toward uh, reducing the income tax rates all the way down. A uh, couple of things. Number one, it, it did catch a few people, I think maybe a few Democrats off guard, that Andy Bashir, the governor of Kentucky, mm -hmm went along with it uh, in this session to further reduce the rates. I'm interested in your position on that. And number two, um, what is your view about how fast this should happen for a state like Kentucky? You see this happening everywhere. You know the, the contours of Kentucky. Uh, Bashir pretending to be for something after opposing it is in the model of uh, most Democrat governors of red states. Uh, North Carolina, the governor, fought it, fought it, hates it, and uh, the other day signed one. Uh, because the votes were there to override his veto. He only signed it after the votes became clear to override his veto. Uh, and you'll see similar effort uh, probably in Arizona as well. We certainly have seen the effects of right to work, which you just mentioned a moment ago, in terms of companies that uh, uh, heretofore wouldn't have even considered Kentucky. Suddenly they were at least were on the short list or at least on a list. Yeah. So to what ex effect do you think that this tax reduction effort will have economic development-wise? Sure. You can take a look and see uh, what's happened in Tennessee, Texas, and Florida, which had right to work, but then they also um, have zero income tax. That tremendously increase, increases the interest of CEOs of moving there, uh, and uh, it's costless to hire people if the government isn't siphoning, uh, siphoning off a bunch of their money with higher taxes. And it also just tells you this is a state that has its spending under control because if your personal income tax is significant, is not zero, um, if they can't, they're trying to spend more than they should, and they will go over to the corporate income tax, they will go over to other taxes as well. No income tax is a way of saying we have our spending under control as well as our taxes. Jared Crawford. Grover, you mentioned some of the Democrat governors who oppose it and then sort of come around because it's it's popular. Not only do they oppose it, they sort of talk about this like parade of horribles that's going to happen. People will die. Schools will shut down. Police, we won't have any police, all these sorts of things. And and then, of course, the, the famous, well, what if we're Kansas sort of excuse that always happens. Can you talk about how they're, they're both wrong on that? But, of course, we've seen in these states 
like Tennessee, which is very similar to Kentucky, that has made this march and doesn't have this parade of horribles that follows. Yes, I think the big extreme example is Florida versus New York State. Uh, New York State has 20 million people. Florida has 22 million people. Florida is bigger than New York. Didn't always used to be that case. Um, and they spend $115 billion a year this year in Florida. $115 billion. It's a lot. And in New York, it's $230 billion. So they spend twice as much per capita, more than twice as much per capita in New York for government. Are their roads better? No. Are their schools better? Is there anything that you could measure that you'd go, oh, I wish... Yes, I would like twice as high taxes because we get X. Make you know, make a list. What they have in New York is more government employees. Uh, they have higher paid government employees. They work fewer hours, and their pensions are something that you'll never live to see. That's what you get for an income tax. Okay, so well, if you don't have an income tax, what do you replace it with? You replace it with non-wasteful spending that you don't do. You don't have to stop doing something. You just have to be more serious about the cost. Before I come to Sean, so you're, you're comparing states and, and throwing out things. What is the model state, in your opinion, for tax policy right now in the United States? Uh, well, a lot of them are doing different things. I, I mean, I like Iowa because it gets the uh, the award for, what is it, when the, the, the kid who's come the furthest <laughs> the, isn't, right. isn't the brightest kid in the class, but he's most really working. Most improved player. Yeah, that's it. Most improved. Most improved. And Iowa. Uh, Two years ago, had a top rate of 8.6% individual. They're, in four years, they're taking it down to 399 uh, Somebody there works for a gas station and decided 399 sounded a lot better than four. Uh, <laughs> so 86 top rate down to 399 And then they're going to zero. The governor, all the legislature agrees. Uh, and their corporate rate was 12%. I think that's down to seven. One of the things that you'll find is the corporate rate raises so much less money, the corporate t- uh, income tax rate raises so much less money than the personal income tax that as you're facing the personal income tax down, at some point these states, North Carolina and Iowa go, wait a minute, why are we dragging this ball and chain around, scaring businesses away? Right. And the corporate rate begins to come down too. Uh, Sean Southern. Can you talk about the, how this has really been a state-led effort and it's spread like wildfire across the country? Like the speed of that, I know that you've been in this space for years and you, you can talk about the federal level too, but talk about the speed at the state level with these these policies, these pro-business, pro-economic uh, freedom policies. You know, we should know this, but I mean, federalism is not only America's secret weapon about why things work, um, <clears throat> how you can do something in a state and realize this is a bad idea uh, or a good idea. Federalism is also the secret to success for the modern conservative movement, the modern Republican Party, uh, and that is our ideas actually work. And so if you do it in New Hampshire, the world goes, that's cool, maybe I could learn from you. Uh, Arizona had a series of sort of first-in-the-nation best laws on liberalizing, you know, if you're a doctor in another state, you move to our state, you don't have to take another license. You don't have to go back to, to medical school. Right. Uh, if, if you, you know, whatever they're licensing for a barber or a hairstylist or all these other, some licenses probably shouldn't exist. But if you've got one and you bring it, we don't ask you to take another 22,000 hours uh, cutting hair before we let you work in this state. Um, and you take an idea like that, and thousands of people have come in, taken advantage of it. It's very important to the military that states allow people's occupational licensing of spouses uh, because they put in their list. You want to know what it takes for us to put more soldiers, more people in your military bases or to open a new military base or to not shut down the one that's in your state? Mm-hmm. This is one of the things we want to see because people, we need people to be able to move and their spouse be able to work immediately. We can't bring somebody in for two years. <laughs> spouse is going to take a year and a half to get a license and then disappear. So um, that's always been a very good idea, but it took Arizona doing it, massaging it, and then other people going, that's a good idea. Um, the counter to that is the Democrats uh, passed a single-payer uh, medical care, uh, health care, like Canada or mm-hmm. some of the European countries, in Vermont. And they then repealed it because it didn't work. Right. Uh, in Massachusetts, I before I emigrated to the United States, I grew up in Massachusetts. <laughs> and, and there, uh, when Dukakis was running against George Herbert Walker Bush for president in uh, 
1988. 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, yes, 1988. Was, there we go. Okay. The it was a while ago. I got, <laughs> you get, you get decades confused. Uh, in, in, in 1988, uh, the Democrats' legislature in Massachusetts passed the equivalent of Obamacare, um, Clinton care, Obamacare. And then they said, see, we've done that. Well, it hadn't taken effect. As soon as he lost the election, the legislature just quietly killed it because they knew it wasn't going to work. Mm. Um, so truly bad ideas have to be done nationally, Obamacare. Um, the welfare structure that we have. Uh, good ideas can be done at the state level and move from state to state. You see education savings accounts, school choice, mm. uh, moving state to state. Mm -hmm. this, this was something that back in 1983, uh, I went to one of those retreats that Gingrich would have of like 20 or 30 congressmen, and I was a friend, so I, I was hanging out with them. And they were, think deep thoughts, you know, gold standard, flat tax, Pizzazz was one of the tables came up with pizzazz. No, zazip, which is pizzazz backwards. I mean, these were out there <laughs> thoughts about, you know. The, the, and one table said school choice, and a prominent leading conservative at the time, and still, got up and said, if you're going to talk about school choice vouchers, I'm going to have to leave the room. Not not just, just so you know, I'm, I can't endorse this in my case. No, no, I cannot be in a room <laughs> where this right. is discussed. And this was not some flaky guy. This was a serious person you would count on in a, Knife mm -hmm. fight in politics, he would be there on a principle, and, and he was for school choice. He just didn't think you could politically talk about it. Now, it is the default position in every red state. States I never thought were going to pass school choice are out doing it. You know, in Kentucky, we've gone round and round about this. We've not gotten there yet. Um, and uh, uh, to be candid, there are some Republicans who have that attitude that, that oh, I'm for it, but I can't, I can't be associated with it. I don't want to be viewed as being anti-school teacher. Uh, or what have you? Um, it, it's pretty shocking to me, actually, uh, that uh, that Republicans here are still cowed by the teachers' unions in a lot of ways. How did you overcome it? I mean, how does this get overcome in states where they finally got over the hump? Well, one of the things when you guys decided to go to phase down to zero, um, Stivers is best friends with the Speaker of the House in Mississippi, who had done it in Mississippi, and he's very good friends with uh, Berger, who's the state senate leader in uh, North Carolina. And so he called him on the phone and said, hey, how'd this work? What are you doing? And it, it sped up what Kentucky's ability to move. So, because they could learn, he could learn from, I mean, they stumbled at first in North Carolina. Their first thought was we'll raise the, 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 the sales tax uh, and cut the income tax. That'll be a good idea. No, it won't. <laughs> this is always a mistake. This is what, you know, uh, Bobby Jindal is not president of the United States because he tried that once. Mm -hmm. Don't shift the tax burden and hide it or, you know. When there's dust, you don't put it under the bed. <laughs> you get rid of it. Um, moving stuff around doesn't doesn't help. But it, it, a lot of people thought that might work. So there were other states which made some stumbles and then figured out what worked. And so it's much easier to check with another leader of the House. or this. And it's not some backbencher. I've got an idea. It's the guy who has to lead the, the march through the institutions. Um, and... You learn from them, and then it's just so much easier to be a, an adapter and even to put your own state's own spin on how you do it and so on. Joe Arnold. We'll get back to current events momentarily, including the president announcing his reelection like an hour or two ago, but right before we're, we're recording this podcast on uh, on April 25th, 9.20 a.m. right now. Time check. Mm -hmm. uh, but I want to ask you, because you mentioned the, the 80s. This is when I – this is my political – you know, uh, coming of age mm -hmm. as, you mean as well. 18 or 1980s? Okay. Anyway. <laughs> it's part it's of the show. Part of the show. <laughs> uh, so, I'm, but I'm, but I'm just fascinated by the fact that, first of all, that the, that Scott mentioned before that you've, you not only started this, but you've remained this, this figure and this mm. kind of this icon of, 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 of reasonable taxation and, and what policy should be. But the fact that you had this interaction with Ronald Reagan, can you take me back to that moment and what that was like and the fact that, and did you imagine at that point that you would still be doing this today? That's a good question. I, I'm not 100% sure what I thought, because I was, I was going to go be a prosecutor or a warden or something. Those were all the books I was reading in high school. And in senior year in high school, instead of going to school, I went down to watch trials and things. So, um, and then I didn't go that direction. But um, I met Reagan when he was running uh, before in, in the 80 race, uh, fundraising up in uh, New Hampshire. did an event uh, for him there. And then in 1985, when he had decided he was going to do tax reform part two, we did the first 
tax cut, a 25% rate cut across the board for everybody. Uh, that gave us the growth from 1983 on for about seven years, very strong economic growth till somebody forgot about that and raised taxes. Um, but that was huge. And um, then in 86, we did a tax reform part two. And that was to go from many rates to two, 15 and 28, top rate from 50 down to 28. Made us the strongest in the whole world. We got our corporate down to 34, which at the time was lower than all the Europeans. Now, everybody in Europe watched us do the 34. They went down to 20, and we're sitting at 35 until Trump and the Republicans <laughs> took right. it down to 21. How'd that take us that long to, to, to figure that one out? I'm not quite sure. But Reagan um, asked if I would run Americans for Tax Reform. The, the White House... My, the, my bio says that uh, he encouraged us to set it up. The White House put it together, okay? And then he said, we would like you to run it because um, I'd run the National Taxpayers earlier, uh, National Taxpayers Union, good taxpayer group. And so we, we created it, and we were pushing for the Tax Reform Act of 1986 for which there was zero popular interest. It was just, you know, getting well out of doctors and credit and raise, it's too confusing. But no, people weren't against it, but they weren't excited about it. And my job was to try and get them excited. <laughs> so uh, what we were able to do is we went to the Republicans who were very concerned if we take the rates down and get rid of all the deductions and credits, that the rates will creep back up again go by, by a point. And taking it up by a point will make a lot more money if you get rid of the deductions and credits. How do we protect against that? So I created the Taxpayer Protection Pledge. I promise to never vote for a tax increase, you know, specifically no rate increases and no broadening the base unless the rates go down. Okay, so um, protecting the rates and the total tax burden. That, we had 100 congressmen who signed immediately, 20 senators, one president, and that was enough to make sure that tax reform did not turn in the last two days when a few people went into a room, and I guess back then they were smoking cigars, but, you know, <laughs> um, and, uh, and they'd come back and, and there'd be this massive tax increase inside of 2,000 changes and who was going to catch that, right? But it, that didn't happen. Matter of fact, it was a modest tax cut. Since then, and actually when George Herbert Walker Bush, the two pe smartest people in the world, convinced it would be okay to raise taxes after he said he wouldn't, um, and uh, it didn't work out well. He had a very successful presidency, that defeated the Soviet Union, broke it into small pieces, kicked Iraq out of Kuwait without sticking around for 25 years to see what happened. Um, very well run, except for the one tax increase. So since then, in 94, we had 96% uh, of all the Republicans' House and Senate sign the pledge. We haven't had a Republican vote for a tax increase since the 90 uh, tax increase, where very few Republicans voted for it, but, but enough to muddy the water as to who was responsible. And that has changed the nature of American politics. From 1932, when FDR came in, until 1994, that is a 62-year period during which the Republicans controlled the House and the Senate, Congress, twice, two two-year terms, four years out of 62 years. Congress runs America. Congress runs America. Presidents can veto things and delay. Presidents can start wars. Presidents can have scandals. But those are the three things they do. They can delay what the other team wants to do. But Congress votes the laws. They vote the taxes. They run the country. When you put a Republican Congress together with a Republican president— you can make tremendous progress. But that didn't happen until after 94, when all the Republicans were never raising taxes, and as the party that would not raise your taxes. We may invade small countries we can't pronounce, but we will not <laughs> raise your taxes. That gave us control of Congress. We won control of Congress more than half the time since 94, starting in 94. Uh, and when we've lost it, it was on foreign policy questions, not on uh, other stuff, and uh, slash... Uh, crises from banks failing. So that sort of thing changed the nature of the two parties. It is the issue that divides <clears throat> Republicans and Democrats more than anything else. Red states that are open to tax increases, Virginia 15 years ago, Colorado 15 years ago, flip blue because why are we voting for you? And the states we have lost to blueness, including California for the same reason, um, if you are allowed tax increases, then what's the difference, the meaningful difference between you and the Ds? Uh, 
Florida, we don't raise taxes. It gets redder and redder. Ohio, we never raise taxes. Even the moderate Republican governors are voting to bring the income tax down to a single rate in Ohio. There's a moderate. There's a fight within the Republican Party and the, in the in the House of Representatives. It's a divided. They both agree we're going to a single rate tax down and then towards zero. Um, it's what unites the Republican Party. It's what puts everybody together, and it allows you to have more economic growth, lower rates and stability. Going to a flat rate uh, tax, a single rate tax, which Kentucky has done, it's one of 12 states that has a non-zero flat rate. The seven states have zero, pretty flat, I like zero. Mm -hmm. uh, but the other states have three, four, five, something, 2.9 in North Dakota, 2.5 in Arizona, single rate. To raise a single rate tax, you have to look everybody in the state in the eye and say, I'm stealing all your money, everybody in the room is gonna feel the pain, and I have this really good idea, which I don't like the looks in your eyes. Uh, forget my idea. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> even in Illinois, 4.95 flat rate, just under 5%. They put on the ballot. Illinois is a crazy state. They spend mm. their crazy. Um, they should be at 10%, like California and uh, Minnesota and New Jersey and New York. Those are the big high tax states. Why? They have a single rate tax. They can't raise it. Their governor, uh, Prinken, uh, spent $50 million, $50 million of his own money to get them to put a constitution to, to pass a constitutional amendment to have a graduated or progressive income tax, they voted it down the same day. Biden carried the state. Mm. They didn't. The progressive, liberal, blue, democratic state. We don't want to go away from <coughs> a flat rate tax. So it's very popular once you get there, and we're finding it's actually quite popular going to it. We're not getting much flack. Uh, every once in a while, somebody goes, "Well, what about this?" But it's not a significant political movement, and it's mostly the D's. So. Um, <clears throat> single rate tax, and again, uh, Iowa's on the way to a single rate tax. Georgia's on its way. Ohio's committed to go to a single rate tax. They're doing this up in North Dakota. Those are all states that aren't yet single rate. That's the voice of Grover Norquist, who's the president of Americans for Tax Reform. He stopped by the Flower Country podcast studios today on his trip to Louisville, Kentucky, to meet with people here who have been moving Kentucky's income tax rate lower. Joe, I'm glad you brought up President Reagan, because I wanted to ask you a question. You've you've seen and worked with all these Republican presidents from Reagan to Trump, and um, the party has changed uh, since you and I knew each other in the Bush years. It's changed. I mean, you, you've seen this evolution. Some Republicans think that we should have a more muscular view of government, that we should use the government the way the left does and use it to punish our enemies and do things. It doesn't necessarily manifest itself in higher taxes always, but it's still government doing things. That's different than the Reagan approach. I'm just interested in your observations of the evolution of the Republican mindset uh, on the use of government uh, to essentially achieve your objectives. I would argue that Reagan's worldview, the Leave Us Alone Coalition, the people who want the government to leave them alone, Who's in the modern Republican Party? This this has not changed. Some of the rhetoric of a handful of people. You have a senator in Arkansas and a senator in Missouri who will never be president who and have no caucus inside their the Republican Party. They each talk about as if they wanted to get the government to do things. Here's the challenge. Government doesn't do things well, okay? Um, and if, if you're going to use the government – I sat and listened to – one guy go, we should use the government to go make all the public schools teach exactly what we want. Yeah. You and what army, okay? What you can do and what we are doing instead is the opposite of that. You want to have schools with dirty pictures in them? You know, that's fine. We just want to be able to leave. Right. And the first people to burn those dirty books will be the teachers union to keep people from leaving. So if you give people options to go to a private school, a parochial school, homeschooling, uh, and in... Uh, Florida, you have five thousand, four thousand, eight. I'm sorry, eight. It's different every state. Eight thousand dollar check to go to the school of your choice to homeschool to put in the bank for when you go to college. Um, people can leave failing or insulting. If the public school system insults your values, it's easier to leave now with an eight thousand dollar check in your pocket to go somewhere else. That's how you, with democracy, you temper the other team. You don't pass law. How many laws do you get? What kind of law would get rid of the books you don't like? How do you describe them? Right. First of all, the laws describing them would all be pornographic and banned. Uh, so <laughs> what, you, what you want is for common sense parents to have the control over where their kids go. And if some school board 
it's silly about life, they can only do that if they know they have a captive audience, okay? The, the East Germans could only do what they did because there was the Berlin Wall. Mm. If there is no Berlin Wall keeping kids inside failing schools, they will leave, and those schools will reform. They will. They can. They say they can't. They act like they can. Watch as kids leave. They will reform. They will get better. Sean Southern. Yeah, I think that uh, I think that you hit on a really good point because really what we're talking about is is uh, is curriculum transparency. We're talking for for ideas that put more information in, into parents' hands so that they can make decisions uh, for folks. Can you talk? I know that you serve on the board of a couple of organizations that are, are working on this uh, stuff. Can you talk about that work that we've seen crop up here in the last? Uh, two, three years, particularly on parent involvement in schools. Oh, absolutely. The, the parental rights movement. Yes. Uh, starting sort of in the homeschooling zone, the parental rights organization that uh, that I am on the board of, mm-hmm. uh, started as a protector for homeschoolers, and now it's broader into broader questions of, of homeschooling. This fits into your earlier comment about where is the Republican Party going. I think if you look at our successes, they're – expansions of the leave us alone, of the get government out of that zone rather than we'll have the government come in and fix it. Um, How did we fix uh, Twitter? Somebody bought it and said, we can do without the FBI deciding who gets to talk on Twitter, okay? (laughs) That's more faster and real in a way that you could not pass a law to make Twitter behave. You just couldn't, okay? But you you can open it up to freedom and let people choose what they do. And that improves. And that will improve the other uh, platforms there. The Second Amendment question, um, you know, you could you could have all the laws you want and hire as many policemen as you want to fight crime. But what's dropped crime in this country is those states that have legalized concealed carry. The 21 and a half million Americans have a concealed carry permit. Twenty seven states don't even require a permit. It's constitutional carry. This, I'm told, started in Arizona where people didn't get the permit and the police would say, look, you really need a permit. And the guy would take his little heritage or Cato <laughs> constitution. <laughs> this is my permit, <laughs> the constitution. And uh, so that's the states that where you can just carry concealed or open, but um, carry concealed uh, there. That's where you've dropped the crime. That's where crime has been dropped. And you give people more autonomy and more control over their own lives and protecting themselves. And the idea that you know, I'd like a big government to do services. Like, for instance, if I got killed, somebody would come by and they'd draw this chalk mark all around my body. That's a government service. I'll pass on that one. I'll get a concealed <laughs> carry. Um, you know, th- thank you, government, for your help after the fact. Government's, government's never the first responder. You're always the first responder, with or without a tool to p- protect your family. Um, the move towards school choice on education. This is 6% of GDP opening up. This is FedEx and, and UPS competing with the – this is email versus the post office. And all of a sudden, you're going, you see these opening up. I would argue that the Republican Party is more pro-freedom in more meaningful ways and in more structures. Education wasn't really considered – I once spoke to a student group in the 80s and talking about freedom. They'd all come in for D.C. I think they're from Nebraska or – or, or Kansas, and there was a couple in prison because they're homeschooling their kids. And in 48 states, it used to be a go-to-jail thing to homeschool. It's not legal. Uh, back towards 86. And the kids are, they broke the law. That's not the attitude people yeah. have towards homeschooling now. They, they, they win all the, uh, the spelling bees, for crying out loud. <laughs> um, and so the expansion of the Second Amendment rights, uh, this expansion of school choice, the freedom of religion issue, which the other team had sort of lost as, a, as an issue, uh, the, the idea that, that, that people should have freedom of religion is, is a much more respected, but the Supreme Court helps, but also that people being willing to say, hey, come on, you know, knock this stuff off. Um, that's intertwined with the education issue of, of school choice because some, for some people they want to go to religious school. Um, and all of these things, I think, lead to a more pro-liberty party, more Reagan-esque party, more Reagan than Reagan. I mean, Reagan couldn't lead on school choice because it wasn't ready yet. Uh, he wasn't quite there on the Second Amendment in terms of at, at certain levels. But right. it's been made safer to do that easier. Um, Sean, one more? Yeah, one last question for me. You know, you must take in so much information on a daily basis because you, you, you read reports, you, you all write reports, you produce a lot of things. I would like to know... Who are one or two authors or readers, that columnists, people that you've 
every single day you're like, I need to, I need to see what they wrote today, or I need to be following what what's what they're saying. I like Eric Erickson's very short several paragraphs of what's going on in the world. Um, he has a very interesting take uh, that I find helpful uh, to see. George Will, as an older man, not when he was back arguing for tax increases before he married, <laughs> <clears throat> before he married a libertarian, um, but now um, he, he actually takes a very serious, principled, long view analysis of liberty issues, and he's always on the liberty side, which is, and, and he writes so well, and he has a great quotation there that you want to remember. Mm-hmm. Um, so his columns, I find, um, very, very um, helpful. But but I think Eric Erickson's stuff is quite good. Yeah, we're, we're big fans of Eric. He was just in here the other day. He came to Louisville and uh, gave a lecture at the University of Louisville and uh, and, and dropped by. We're, we're big fans of him. Uh, that's Grover Norquist, by the way, you're listening to here on the Flower Country Podcast. Let's shift gears to current events, the debt ceiling. You're involved in this. There's a lot of news about whether Kevin McCarthy can get uh, his uh, package uh, passed out of the Republican conference. I know there's some questions about ethanol tax credits and other things. I'm certain people are consulting you for your advice here. Uh, what is going to happen with the Republicans on the debt ceiling? Better than I would have told you three minutes ago. <laughs> um, Great. <laughs> Breaking news. <laughs> the line in the sand for the Republican uh Party will be that this has to, it's the Boehner rule on steroids. The Boehner rule 10, 12 years ago when uh, Obama wanted to raise the debt ceiling, $2.4 trillion, which would get him past the next election, which was his goal, and our leverage point, which is also the case with Biden. He does not want another debt ceiling debate where you have to talk to Republicans. Um, this is a man who grew up before you ever had to talk to Republicans. I talked about 1994 when the Republicans in Washington became <clears throat> relevant in Congress. Um, not dominant, but relevant. We went 50% of the time, you have to talk to us. Okay? Um, before that, you didn't. That Biden doesn't remember anything after 94 necessarily. But before 94, th- what you knew that democracy is when the Democrats had the House and the Senate, and they would agree and that that was democracy. And now you have to talk to Republicans. This is not democracy at all. Um, <laughs> yes. And his whole definition of democracy is I get my way. I, I, it's going to be slow. You have to debate, talk with the Southern Democrats as well as the Northern Democrats. <laughs> but it was all within the modern Democratic <laughs> Party. Uh, and this this new thing that's, that's bothering him of having Republicans who can say no is jolting. And, and Obama had the same problem. Obama didn't like to meet with the Republicans because the idea – he grew up in Illinois and Chicago. He never had to talk to a Republican. And you had the same problem with, with uh, our friend Clinton. These are people who grew up never having to talk to a Republican in the state legislature as governor, uh, as an elected official in Illinois, as a Chicago person. Um, and now they do. So it drives them crazy. And, and literally, that's their definition of not democracy, that we don't get our way all the time. The government doesn't keep expanding like it's supposed to. Um, <clears throat> Theorists told us it, it would do that. Um, we, back 12 years ago, said if you want to get $2.4 trillion in higher debt ceiling, which we're going to do because we don't want to close the government down or all that stuff, mm. um, we need $2.4 trillion in less spending from your plans over the next 12 years. We got that. That is exactly what we got, dollar for dollar. Right. There was the sequester to defend it. There was actually a divot in the sequester where defense spending went down $40 billion one year, and the defense Republicans go, oh, this, this makes us nervous. And the Democrats said, well, we'll, uh, we'll give you the 40 if you give us $40 billion to give to hire Democratic precinct workers in major cities. Um, and <laughs> so we gave the Democrats their money for Democratic precinct workers, and we got the military. But it was spending. It was $80 billion in spending. The Republicans said, well, we need to offset that with spending. So they offset it with a little tweak in one of the entitlement programs worth $3.2 trillion net present value, okay? That was bigger than the whole deal because it was a small tweak Mm. that going out opened up like a hollow point bullet Mm. and just got bigger and bigger. Um, And going in, I think there'll be two things. I think some of the fixes that come in towards the end when it gets too nasty will be small changes today that are big changes in the future. They're such that you'd never repeal them because you can't get the votes to do that increase in spending. And that Democrats are very 
present-minded, like you know, teenagers doing smash and grab. They haven't thought through after they steal the bracelets um, uh, what, how this is going to affect the rest of their lives. And the Democrats just look inside that that, that window of the of, of the jewelry shop and they want the money. You know, I may spend thirty years in prison, but I want the money right now. So they will, <laughs> they will give us a lot in overall spending restraint in reforms in order to get the bracelets, um, and that's one deal. We are going to have a deal with no net tax increase, um, and because of course the Democrats' position is always, we have a solution to deficits, raise taxes. Yes, you want to spend less. That is why it's almost always a mistake for Republicans to focus on the deficit, which is the difference between two important numbers. It's the unimportant number that's the difference between two important. How much the government spends, that's the deadweight cost of government. Whether they take it by force and taxes or borrow it, it is gone from the real economy, and they've been hiring Democratic precinct workers with it. And um, so this is the cost of government. And this Milton Friedman says that the cost of government is spending, not how you get the money, not take tax. I mean, there are more and less destructive ways to get money. There are taxes that are more destructive of growth and less. Borrowing when the rate's one thing and when the rates go up is, is a worse thing. Um, so there are differences in how much you borrow and how much you take by force and taxes. But the deadweight cost is spending. That's what you focus on. We have two ways to reduce spending as the size of the economy, government spending as the size of Grow the economy faster than government. Then the government becomes smaller and smaller. I don't mind a big government in a really big country. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, but you don't want even a small government in a really small country because it's a bigger piece of the pot. Mm -hmm. um, our government is bigger than Belgium's, but theirs is bigger per capita. <laughs> um, so, it, and the, the other part is we cut spending, cut spending, and grow the economy. How do you grow the economy? Reduce taxes, reduce spending, re uh, reduce regulatory burden. Uh, that's uh, maintain the rule of law. All the good things we want make the government smaller as a percentage of GDP, and reducing spending does that as well. The Ds have no solutions to size of government. To what extent does pandemic-era spending and this historic explosion in, in government spending, and it's, one of the, it's a factor in every state, I would think, as well, yes. mm -hmm. how has how that kind of that reset or complicated this effort? Um, I think, in retrospect, the pandemic <clears throat> will turn out to have been... Um, the Democrats thought it was going to be their test run for tremendously increasing government control over people's lives. Right. And they were just The reordering having, of the world. Yeah. Well, the, everybody has to be six feet away. Well, their own test said in some cases you might want to be three feet away. Six. We make six. <laughs> okay. yeah. um, just to show, because three is not so bad when you're in line in a grocery store. Six is ridiculous. Six. Got to be six. And you have to have this kind of mask, even, it turned, even long after they knew that masks actually don't work for this particular kind of, mm -hmm. of disease, got to wear the mask because it was like saying, I surrender. It's like when the Chinese guys pull their, you know, bow to the guy as they walk back <laughs> to show you're important and I'm, I'm a peasant. Um, and the, you put those on. And to this day, the Democrats in my neighborhood go around wearing them as this sign of submission to the state. <laughs> um, and, uh, but all of those things that, that, that mm -hmm. were completely counterproductive gave us parents I, I, I was brought in for a meeting with the Romney people when he was going to run for, when he was the nominee and they were going to have a discussion about education I said how about government transparency you put a camera in they're 200 bucks now in every fifth grade class so parents can see the teacher teaching and when if the kid's having trouble, they can sit at home on the computer and watch with the kid. Say, do you, do you see what the teacher's doing? Do you understand if you're falling behind and you're not getting it? You know, because how do you help a kid? How do you know what they're supposed to learn? You can watch it now on on video, mm -hmm. right? So they thought that was the dumbest idea they'd ever heard. Um, <laughs> now parents were doing that. They yeah. were sitting there watching their kid, and the school, they're not teaching that well. Uh, they're teaching in certain ways odd things, not math and science, but what you're supposed to think, kid. Um, and uh, that led to the revolution against school boards, the expansion of people's interest in private schools. This has really backfired on, on the left. The 
being able to work at home, wanting more people to be independent contractors and therefore not pay union dues. This is a massive – the D's made a big mistake when they – tried to use this to condi- – we don't want to be conditioned. But what about the money, though? I guess my, my, my question is in terms of the, uh, the overall spending and yes. what, whether that has – This was my roundabout way of getting to just what <laughs> okay. you are uh, which is – and they throw all this money into the states. Red states are cutting taxes and getting thin and trim and, and exercised, and blue states are getting fat and slobby. Yeah. Um, and they're hiring more Democratic precinct workers that when the money <laughs> stops coming in, how are they going to pay for this? It's, it's a sugar rush. They get, they, they, California, remember California had like a 40 or $100 billion surplus <laughs> and then the next year they, they were in deficit because if you take one-time money and hire people, there isn't, the money's gone and now you've committed to give that amount of money every year to somebody's salary and then to their pension. These blue states dug themselves deep into a problem that will be very difficult for them to get out. And I think they, you know, like an alcoholic, I think they hit bottom before they, they reform. Um, they are just, they, they're going to black out and, when, and realize that people are leaving their state permanently. And the people who leave are the ones with incomes uh, and resources. And the people who stay are the ones who don't have real jobs um, uh, or on welfare. And Eventually, the blue states will reform. The best way to help your friends in a blue state, like Illinois next, near Kentucky, is get Kentucky down to zero personal income tax, right to work, less spending, keep the trial lawyers at bay from looting everything. And, um, and then as people leave Illinois, they will look to um, Kentucky and Indiana and I- Iowa, which is in the same path that you guys are on, from a worse place to start, um, that – then Illinois will sober up and begin to only spend what they can afford and decide that to go for growth. Because it's a little hard to argue that we have a successful program when people are leaving your state. Grover Norquist is the president of Americans for Tax Reform. Before we let you go, looking ahead to 2024, Joe Biden, as we record this, is launching his reelection campaign. We have a number of Republicans running. I assume you've begun the process of educating and evaluating the Republicans who are uh, looking to get the nomination away from Donald Trump. So I have two questions. A, are you encouraged by what you're hearing out of the Republican campaigns or campaigns to be? And B, um, would you be satisfied if Trump were the nominee from a from a position that you sit in where you want the Republican to believe in lower taxes, less government, et cetera? Uh, Trump signed the pledge against raising taxes when he ran, um, and he kept it. Yep. He did not support a tax increase, recommend a tax increase. He had no impure thoughts about tax increases, um, <clears throat> nor did any of the people that he put into uh, positions of authority. Uh, and on the judges, uh, the whole rule of law question, getting back to a constitution, protecting Second Amendment rights as well as religious liberty, um, were all things that worked very well. Mm. Um, <clears throat> the he, the deep state convinced him to shut the government down. Um, you know, Fauci talked him into all sorts of nonsense. Fauci wasn't elected to anybody. Fauci should have been fired, you know, uh, early on in the administration yeah. uh, because he was just such a statist whose answer is more power to the state all the time. Um, and that's and that's that's a real challenge. I think the big difference between the two parties right now is we have an incredible bench. I mean, Trump's the front runner at present, but, but if Trump decided not to run or he decided he was too old or something, um, you've got... DeSantis, who has governed very well in Florida, every good idea that other state has done, they're busy passing in mm-hmm. Florida. And they're able to do this because uh, both Jeb Bush uh, and Rick Scott really kept spending down. They, we talked to Rick Scott. He'd tell you how many full-time employees he had in the Florida legislature since the last time you talked. And <laughs> he was focused on that thing, which kills states, getting too expensive in terms of personnel. Um, and <clears throat> once you do that, you create a voting block for more spending as well as it's too expensive. And then when they hit the pension years, it's worse than when they were working. Um, and at least they're not doing anything annoying to hurt the economy, but but they're expensive. Uh, so, uh, you know, Rick Scott is somebody who could run for president. DeSantis could, could, could as governor, be. I, I think the only sp- constitutional amendment that I actually support would be one that says, um, you, you can't run for president until you've been governor. 
But um, <laughs> because I really think that being a governor as opposed to a senator or a congressman or even a general is 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 the best training for an executive branch leader. Uh, but uh, if if you look at the the people that have run it, it, Abbott in Texas. Uh, runs the state very, very well. Um, the governor of Oklahoma, Stitt, the governor of Vir- uh, Virginia, Yunkin, um, uh, governor of Iowa. I mean, the, these are all people who could who could step into the presidency and you'd feel very, very comfortable. The D's have nothing like that. But the only person on your list who's currently considered to be a presidential candidate is, is DeSantis. This is true. This is true. But uh, watch Abbott. Watch Abbott. He is governing well if he gets school choice through. If somebody else decides, you, you, so you think you, the field could grow? Yeah. I, well, first of all, somebody may stumble, lanes may open up. Um, I, I think Youngkin in Virginia is the guy who polls at sixty percent in Virginia. Hi, I will bring you Virginia as a state. Okay, mm-hmm. now we don't need Wisconsin. Um, and if we're winning Virginia and guaranteeing North Carolina, and Kemp is keeping uh, Georgia under control. Um, we are in an infinitely stronger position. Well, we used to have Virginia regularly, okay? Um, I think it can be the case again, and just as DeSantis has made Florida quite red, um, at least during his time, uh, uh, our friend uh, Youngkin is doing the same thing in Virginia. Watch this fall if he carries the Senate. He has the House but not the Senate in in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, He will be able to pass school choice, parental rights, and begin a phase out of the income tax to zero, then he will he will be the equivalent of DeSantis, who was born on third base. We don't have an income tax, right? I mean, right. He, he, <laughs> I get he, it. he protects it. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't do it. Abbott protects it. He didn't do it. Yankin would go, I'm doing it. I'm okay. doing it. Yeah. Um, so it you may look like you're way back the line because Virginia isn't as well-governed as Florida is now, but that's because of who was there before. Again, watch Oklahoma, same thing, and Iowa. Before you go, uh, we don't know who the Republican nominee is going to be, uh, but Joe Biden is running for re-election. He's super old, and 70% of the American people do not want him to run again. All that having been said, what odds would you put on the Republican Party's chances of winning this White House in 2024? If the campaign is based on Biden's failure and the future, then any Republican can win. Trump sometimes focuses on the past, settling scores or whatever. A debate about the past will lose, can lose, because then Biden doesn't have to talk about the future or his responsibility if one is debating the past. And there are days when Trump talks about keeping the country moving forward, as Reagan did, uh, and there are days when he's focused on something that happened five years ago that I don't remember but seemed to bother him. Um, And if when he focuses forward-looking, then we can talk about the failures of uh, President uh, Biden. But if we're, if, if we're focused on the past, we don't get to win. The, the, you go to Europe, they all focus on the past. I once listened to a lecture from a guy from Serbia who was going on for 40 minutes, and he'd gotten up as far as um, uh, 700s AD. You know, um, <laughs> and I finally I waved at the guy who was running the thing. I said, "We've got to speed this up." And he whispers to the guy, "Okay, jumping ahead to 1400." Uh, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the Europeans really have the past down well. You talk to a Pakistani or India about 1948, you know, um, and they remember it day by day. 1940, that was a while ago. Yes, but let me tell you what happened. Um, it just on and on and on. We're best friends with the Japanese. You know, <laughs> that was that was around forty-eight or so. I mean, we let things go and look forward, and that is what we need to do as people, candidates, and a country. I think your your advice is so uh, important because it strikes me what I've seen out of Biden this morning already is he he feels like someone to me who's going to want to be trapped by talking about the last four or eight years. He he will have trouble, I think, projecting into the future. Yep, because he's just so fixated on. I did this, and when I was this, and I did that, and I really do think if someone can just fully focus on the future, as you advise, it would be good. Joe, take us out. Well, Mike, Mike, and just very briefly on that, because his whole campaign theme is finish the job. So in Grover Norquist's uh, perspective, what does that mean if Joe Biden is allowed to finish the job? He wants to raise taxes higher. He has a list of uh, four or five trillion dollars in taxes he wants. He wants to raise our corporate income tax higher than communist China's. He wants these are 
written down proposals. This is his yeah, budget. Yeah. Uh, he wants to take the capital gains twice as high as China's. Who wants to invest in the country with twice the high capital gains? He wants to take our capital gains back to Jimmy Carter territory. Uh, he wants to take our personal income taxes down higher than anything before 80, going back to 86. Um, he wants to go back to the back to the past, actually, in terms of economic policies, policies that didn't work. And I'm sorry to do one last thing, Scott. Because, Keep going. Well, no, no. I know we have like one minute left here. But because this is the pledge I hear all the time, and we've talked about it here, but we have the man here yeah. who can actually counter it. I'm told from all of my Democratic friends and from the president and the president's proclamations that no one earning less than $400,000 will have a single penny of their taxes raised. Explain to me what that is. Okay. This is the lie Democrats tell when Clinton ran. He said, I want no one who makes less than $150,000 will get uh, no family that makes less than $150,000 will see any tax increases. Obama said no one will see, making less than $250,000 will see any tax increase. Biden took it up to $400,000. Uh, as soon as he got into office, uh, Carter tried to raise energy taxes on everybody, not just rich people. Um, and as soon uh, a month into uh, Obama, he raised cigarette taxes on uh, smokers who average age, uh, average income forty thousand dollars a year. Okay, he didn't care. He didn't care. He didn't care. He just wanted the money. Uh, so they lie in order to tell you pay no attention. Uh, this is why single rate taxes are so good because you either raise everyone's taxes or cut everyone's taxes or leave everybody status quo. Um, and, of course, Biden lied as well. He said he wasn't going to raise anyone's taxes. That at one level, when you raise the corporate income tax, 70% of the corporate income tax is paid by workers either in lower wages or in higher prices, 70%. So corporate income tax, is Democrats love it because it hides the incidence of taxation. Mm -hmm. It hides who's getting hurt. And you go into the store and everything costs more. Well, I didn't raise taxes on you. I raised taxes on the, the grocery store. Right. That you get to pay. Grocery stores don't have any money. You don't give them. So when you tax grocery stores, they're taxing you. It just has to be a carrot that you think somehow is, is raising your taxes. You know, but, <laughs> but, you know, your, your cost of living and your wages go down. Yeah. When the Republicans and Trump cut the corporate rate from 35 to 21, two years later, 80, um, in 2019, the Median income income of a family of four went up 6.8%. 6.8%. That's a larger increase than all eight years of Obama in one year, predicted because of the cut in the corporate income tax by the Republicans. As they wrote it, they said, this is what's going to happen. press never covered that, but they actually wrote down. They said, it's going to go up. They said $4,000 went up over 6.8. You saw companies hand out $1,000 checks, AT&T, as soon as they said – we see this coming. We're going to be paying everybody more because, uh, one, we have the money, and, two, we're going to have to to keep people in our workforce. They wrote that. They said, this isn't the end of it, but just there's a thousand to start with. Okay, And that went in a lot of the uh, companies. Uh, every utility cuts your taxes because when you raise the corporate rate, utilities are allowed to, by law, required to pass on that tax. And when we cut the corporate income tax, everyone saw their utilities drop from where they were going to be. Your utilities go up with Mr. Biden's tax increases, the corporate income tax that, that oh, the power company will pay for it yeah. when you write your check to pay for the power each month. He raises the cost of things and the cost of power. You pay for it, and it's taxed, and you pay that extra. So it, it's a lie from start to, to, to finish, but it, it does, with the press's help, they can sometimes get through an election as if they weren't tax increasers. Thank you for indulging me. And thank you, Joe. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Jared Grover Norquist, head of the Americans for Tax Reform. You're in Kentucky. Thank you for stopping by. You've been a great guest. Thank you. Good to be here. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Mm-hmm.